When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back with another Midnight Myth. I am extra excited because it feels like ages since we've recorded. It feels like it was last year that we Uh? recorded. (laughs) Because the last recording was in 2023, and we're now here in the winter of 2024, and we are back finally concluding our three-part series on the Star Wars prequels. And I must say, dear Midnight Myth listeners, the reason we haven't done this episode sooner is entirely my fault. I had to go and get myself pneumonia and was very sick for... Almost a whole month, almost a whole month of January. Yeah, how dare you? I you know. You should be embarrassed. I'm such a weak, weakling with these <laughs> sick lungs. I would never make it as a Sith Lord. Oh, ever. No. <laughs> in a million years. I don't think I'd make it as a Jedi either, but I would definitely not make it as a Sith yeah, Lord. Yeah, no, you set foot on Mostafar and you would just <laughs> disintegrate. Into space dust immediately. So here we are. We're going to round out this series on the Star Wars prequels. Super excited to talk about it. As many of you know, Star Wars is a subject that's near and dear to my heart. As we are recording, I'm looking at our Darth Vader, Lego Darth Vader uh, desk clock, which is clearly out of batteries because I don't see a time on it. We should probably put new batteries in that at some point. But here we are, Star Wars fanatics, Finishing our conversation on the prequels, which started with a Midnight Myth meditation on Ahsoka many months ago. Couldn't be happier to be here. Laurel, how you feeling? I'm feeling great. You know how I know you're excited? You started your intro for this episode like a full octave higher than you normally do. It was very much, whoa, 
welcome to the Midnight Myth, and I really enjoyed it. The kind of Derek Jones on helium voice. Well, part of the reason I was also super excited is this is like totally not about the episode at all. Laurel showed me an easier way to hit the record start button on our new computer. And I was just like, shortcuts, baby. And I was super, super happy that I learned a new way to start record. So that's another reason I was super excited at the intro, because I'm like, whoa, this really worked. We're recording now. But anyway, I cannot wait to dive into the multifaceted, multi-layered uh, discussion around Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. I would also like to, if possible, leave room at the end to kind of reflect on the prequel trilogy. What have we learned through this exercise? What are some of our own meditations about the prequels? And ultimately, what is the Star Warsian legacy of the prequels? But before we roll up our sleeves and get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Oh, my thing is just that we would love to hear from you. We are sort of on the World Wide Web these days. Our Twitter slash X presence is... Definitely not what it used to be, just because that app is not what it used to be, but we are still here and we still want to hear from you. So probably right now the best way to drop us a line is either doing so on the app formerly known as Twitter, and we'll check those every once in a while, or you can hit us up on the website, midnightmyth.com. There's a contact form, and we would just love to be in touch. Also, if you are a fan of The Midnight Myth and you like my voice and or Derek's voice, we have two other shows in the works. There is a brand new episode of The Wheel of Ka that just came out with Derek and Steve, where they go through every Stephen King book one by one, and they just read Misery. It's a great episode, trust me, so check that out on The Midnight Myth feed as a bonus, or also on The Wheel of Ka feed separately and individually. And then also, I produce Sleep and Sorcery on the side, and that is my folklore and fantasy-inspired sleep story podcast. That one is currently in a season break, but I am going to be back with new episodes. Season four of Sleep and Sorcery is dropping at the end of February. So I'm hard at work writing those stories and would love to have you in the evening when you're trying to fall asleep or as you're trying to uh, relax during the day, come and check those out. And maybe buy my book, I don't know. So the hardcover for Sleep and Sorcery, Enchanting Bedtime Stories, Rituals, and Spells is available now directly through my publisher, Crossed Crow Books. So check them out. We'll have a link in the show notes to that. You can also pre-order the paperback, which will be out in August. And that one you can get through the publisher or you can get internationally through Amazon, if you must, or Barnes & Noble. Bookshop.org is one that I highly recommend if you want to support local indie bookstores uh, instead of the big Amazon machine. So please check that out. I am super excited and grateful for the response so far and uh, would love to have my book on your bookshelf or your bedside. And Derek already mentioned this, but we are recording on an all-new setup. We have new mic stands, we have a new computer, and we are just loving life right now. And I have to give a big shout out to people who have supported Sleep and Sorcery, especially on Patreon, because I don't think we could have done this without that. So thank you for all the support for all three of our shows over the years. 
it's been really, really amazing to make this stuff and to watch it grow. Yeah, you know, that's an interesting thing that you just said. And every once in a while, there are these inflection moments where you kind of have to pause. And for me, sort of like pinch myself, like, is this really my life? The fact that between the two of us, we produce three shows and they have the response that they have, the fans that they have. And it's been fun to really build this community with you and see it grow and change and evolve. And just like feeling super grateful and super humble and super appreciative of everyone that's ever downloaded, commented, retweeted, gone on our Facebook, whatever. Even if you never did any of those things and you just listened and enjoyed it and maybe told your friend. And even if you listened and are listening and hated it, but you told your enemy to listen, I'm grateful to you for that. So oh, I love it when you hate listen to us. I love it. Yeah, exactly. Well said. And just also a huge shout out to all the indie pods out there. We have met such amazing people in the community and it just never ceases to amaze me how much work and energy and love and care people put into this art form or this media form. There is just so much good stuff out there. So if you're a podcast listener, try some indies. People are working hard and making really beautiful stuff. Indeed. On with our show. Shall we do our briefest of brief recaps? Take it away, Derek. Again, these movies are stuffed with plot. This movie starts with Anakin Skywalker and Obi-Wan Kenobi on a mission in an attempt to rescue Chancellor Palpatine from Count Dooku and General Grievous. This rescue mission is successful. However, Grievous escapes and Anakin kills Count Dooku under the heavy influence of Chancellor Palpatine. What then follows is we learn that Anakin and his secret wife Padme, Padme is now pregnant with a child, and they're finding it harder and harder to live the dual lives of Senator and Jedi while having a secret marriage. Meanwhile, the galactic civil war between the clone army under the Republic and the droid army under General Grievous is intensifying. Lo and behold, Chancellor Palpatine, close with Anakin, starts to give him more and more tutelage. He appoints Anakin as his personal representative on the Jedi Council. Then he feeds Anakin information, intel, intelligence, if you will, about the location of General Grievous and suggests that Anakin be in charge of the mission to destroy him. General Grievous, that is. And then he starts telling Anakin about the myth of Darth Plagueis the Wise, who was so powerful with the Force, he could influence the Metaphorians to create life itself, hence he could save the people he loved from dying. And he tells Anakin that this power cannot be learned by a Jedi. Meanwhile, the Galactic War is raging. Obi-Wan Kenobi gets dispatched to fight General Grievous. Yoda is dispatched to go ahead and, and defend the Wookiees on Kashyyyk. And there's a great Wookiee battle with Yoda as the general fighting all of the droids. And meanwhile, Chancellor Palpatine admits to Anakin that he is a Sith Lord and says, use my knowledge because together you and I can find the secret to save Padme's life. This entire movie, Anakin Skywalker is having visions of Padme dying in childbirth. 
Anakin Skywalker conflicted. He goes to Mace Windu, one of the top Jedis of the Jedi Council, and says that really, Chancellor Palpatine is a Sith Lord. He will not give up his power. And then Mace Windu says, Anakin, you stay here. We'll confront um, the Emperor, the would-be Emperor at this point. Anakin decides that he must go and save Palpatine's life because Palpatine is the only avenue that Anakin has to potentially save Queen Amidala, I'm sorry, Senator Amidala's life. In this, Anakin pledges himself to the teachings of the dark side and helps Chancellor Palpatine kill Mace Windu. And then Anakin is ordered to become Darth Vader and march on the Jedi Temple and exterminate all Jedi, even the younglings. Palpatine then creates Order 66, in which every clone trooper must turn on the Jedi in battle as the Jedi are leading them. All of the Jedi get systematically, artfully, and ruthlessly murdered in one brutal stroke. With almost all of the Jedi dead, Anakin Skywalker is ordered to Mustafar to kill the Separatists, which he exterminates with extreme prejudice, and then orders the droid army to shut down. Obi-Wan Kenobi and uh, Yoda narrowly escape with their lives. They end up connecting and realizing that there is a beacon in the Jedi Order that's asking all surviving Jedi to return to the temple. However, they know this is a trap because now Palpatine has control of the Jedi Temple. So Obi-Wan and Anakin return to the Jedi Temple to stop the beacon from emanating this secret or this frequency, this message, if you will, only to learn that it was Anakin Skywalker who led the assault on the temple and killed the younglings. Obi-Wan then goes to kill Anakin and... Stop Anakin, I should say, and then Yoda tries to stop Palpatine. Both fail. Before Anakin and Obi-Wan's battle commences, Obi-Wan ends up defeating Anakin, and Anakin gets burned in lava. And Anakin, I'm sorry, Obi-Wan cannot bring himself to kill his previous apprentice, and so... Instead of killing him, he lets him lie there in the hopes that maybe he would die on his own. However, Palpatine discovers him, discovers his injuries, and turns him into the Darth Vader that we know in the suit with the breath. Lo and behold, Queen Amidala dies from injuries sustained in this battle brought on by Anakin, who force chokes her right before she gives birth to her two twins. Senator Organa ends up taking Leia, and then Obi-Wan ends up taking Luke back to Tatooine. And that's the movie. I swear to God, I watched this movie three hours ago, and I don't remember half of those details, and you watched this movie maybe three months ago. I have so. seen this movie many times. Like you just many, have a many really times. uncanny knack for holding on to detail, so... Really excellent recap. That was really helpful for me, too, just to remind me what happens in this movie. But, uh, yeah, really well done. Moment of silence for the younglings at the temple, man. Yeah, harsh one. Yeah. 
So this is usually where we would ask the, the start-off question here. This movie came out, um, I want to say 1999, uh, late 90s, early 2000s. I don't remember exactly when, but it's been no, a this minute. This like 03. All right, my so guess. 03. My guess is 03. All right, great. We could look it up, but that, that's not really the point. Excuse me. It's been out for almost 20 years, maybe over 20 years. Laurel, does it hold up? This is one that has really kind of done a boomerang for me. I saw this one in the theater, and I was, I think I mentioned this in our Phantom Menace episode, I was in, like, the height of my movie snobbery. Oh, five. Oh, I was two years off. Yeah, so I was 15, and I was really in the height of my movie snobbery. You couldn't help it. You had to look up the exact date. I had to look it up. And when I saw it, I was so put off by the really stunningly poor dialogue and a lot of the things that don't really work about this movie that I carried a whole lot of negativity about it. And while I still feel overall that the prequels are definitely a letdown compared to the original trilogy, and there are certain aspects of the prequels that have just aged worse and worse, this movie, I feel like, has actually come back around for me in some ways. It truly does have some of the most memorably bad dialogue I have ever heard in a movie. But it also has some really wonderful lines of poetry, some really incredible themes that run through it. It gets to this kind of heightened romance that is really over the top, but kind of works in almost a gothic fashion if you watch it a certain way. And really watching the Anakin downfall again and again, especially now that it's informed by further pieces in the canon, I, I think this one has actually held up better than anything else among the prequels. There's also some great, there's bad acting and then there's some great acting too. Ewan McGregor is just still killing it as Obi-Wan Kenobi. The scene where he has the high ground and says, you were my brother, Anakin, I loved you. Like That really gets to your heart. So there is still some of that emotional connection to the characters that you love about Star Wars. So all this is to say, I think its faults don't go away, but... It is the strongest outing of the prequels, and it is probably visually the most stunning, visually the most memorable, and thematically the most cohesive. So your point about the dialogue, and I, and I don't mean to harp on it, but right now you look a, a little like a scruffy-looking, stuck-up nerf herder. Hold me like you did by the lake on Naboo, when there was nothing but our love, no politics, no, no my, war. My, my point is this, is if you go into any of the George Lucas written Star Wars movies thinking you're going to see good dialogue, I would say that the dialogue is equally bad in all of the movies he's written. You know, and I don't think Revenge of the Sith is any more sinful than any of the other movies about dialogue. It's not the strength of George Lucas as a writer. And you take that going in. And I don't, I think, I think if for me evaluating 
the words that actors are saying, I think Revenge of the Sith has the best dialogue of the prequels. I really, truly do. And like every single one of them has some moment that's like, oh, those lines are a little silly or they're not really landing. But I think by far and away, Attack of the Clones has some of the toughest dialogue. In particular, George Lucas trying to write a love scene between Padme and Anakin is really rough for me. There's no moment in Revenge of the Sith where I'm watching an entire scene just going like, oh, man. It, there are moments where I'm like, yeah, I don't think the dialogue is great, but we have, we have Anakin in the meditation chamber with Yoda discussing what it means to have attachment and what it means to fear death. Great dialogue. We have Amidala and we have Organa Solo, or just Organa, sitting there as the Empire is officially born. The pretense of the Republic is pulled away and the Empire is born. And we have the dialogue where Queen Amidala goes, so this is how liberty dies, to thunderous applause. I think we have some of the best writing George Lucas, from a dialogue perspective, has ever done. And I think this is why people say it about Revenge of the Sith, because it's juxtaposed to normal bad George Lucas dialogue, which I don't think is any worse than in any of his, any of his other movies, but when it's really transcendent in this movie, you're like, hold on, why isn't this whole movie this good? Yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree with you that there are some truly like mind-blowing lines in this that really stick with you. That Padme line is so good. Anything, honestly, that comes out of Palpatine's mouth in this movie, even when it's ridiculous and it's it's camped up to the level that you're just like, how can Ian McDiarmid even speak with all the scenery in his mouth? Like, it's truly just so satisfying. It's creepy, it's spooky, it's weird, it is ominous, and it's also kind of funny and titillating. It's just really got that kind of gothic spin that now that I am watching it with a whole lot of other context, I really deeply enjoy. Yeah, so I think attacking... Attacking, that's not the right word. Criticizing this movie on the dialogue, to me, is it's just a weird place to go considering the journey we've been with the prequels. Because by far it's the best dialogue of the three. And I think it makes some of the more clunkier doesn't land lines uh, stick out more, other than you know the, the previous two movies where like all the dialogue's kind of meh. This is one where there's some amazing dialogue and then there's meh. And maybe the meh just looks worse because of that. All right, that's fair. I also think this movie has, in the Duel of the Fates, the lightsaber battle between Obi-Wan and Anakin. Up until when it becomes just over-CGI'd, but when it's just them fighting. It's awesome. Arguably the best lightsaber fight. And one of the reasons I love it so much is there is a symmetry behind their movements that they cannot get the other ha upper hand. One, because Anakin was trained by Obi-Wan. They're truly kind of equals. They have a similar fighting style with Anakin's being a little more aggressive because he's now on the dark side, Anakin Vader, and Obi-Wan's being a little more defensive because he is a Jedi. But also how well they do 
with a lightsaber with two lightsabers the same color. Yeah. It is so infrequent that we see a lightsaber battle with two people with the same color. And that's that makes sense. It's easier to differentiate the lightsabers when they don't share the same color. It's easier to follow. It's easier to know. And the fact that these lightsaber battles have such movement, in particular this one, in the same color, and you, it almost becomes like they're one. It almost becomes they are one actual uh, unit in it. And I think that highlights the tragedy of the downfall of the Obi-Wan and Anakin relationship really well in how it tells the story through that lightsaber fight. And I do think that's one of, if not the best, in all of Star Wars. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm going to get more into this kind of doubling and doppelganging uh, foil stuff as we get into analysis. So I really love that you brought that up with the, the dual lightsabers, the duel of the fates. Before we kick off that analysis, though, I want to kind of as a segue or as a gateway into it, return to a question that we opened our Phantom Menace episode with. And I was like, we should do this for every one of our Star Wars prequel episodes. And then we didn't do it for uh, Attack of the Clones. I completely forgot about it, but I want to come back to it now. It's similar to a question you ask on the Wheel of Ka when you're talking about the Dark Tower, which is what is Ka in this book and has a changed shape. What is the force in this movie? And maybe, you know, what is the force overall in the prequels? To you, would you like to kick that off? Hoof wasn't prepared for that. I should have been um, because we have been talking about that. I feel that the best way to understand the Force is to go back to the dialogue. Obi Wan Kenobi says to Anakin as he is burning and dying and dismembered, "You are the chosen one." You were meant to bring balance to the force, not leave it in darkness. And I think the way we can understand how this movie ends is the dark side wins. And it wins this trilogy, and the force is left in darkness. And the dark side is about using the force, as Palpatine says for pathways many would deem to be unnatural. unnatural. So it is a unnatural state. The natural state of the galaxy, when it's in balance, is a free republic, albeit imperfect, with conflict, but people can resolve their differences democratically. They can resolve their differences through dialogue and not through war. And we are left with a galaxy that is being ruled with an iron fist, and those who do not agree will be forced to comply via the dark side, via the overtaking of the light with the dark. And so to me, the force is left in darkness here. This is a movie about the rise of evil in the galaxy. This is a trilogy about that, but mostly this movie is like, no, the bad guys win. And it's not triumphant. It is tragic. And the downfall of Anakin to Darth Vader 
is tragic. It is one of the saddest stories in all of Star Wars. And we don't feel great about it at the end. So to me, the force is left with the chosen one choosing the dark over the light and leaving the force in a shroud of darkness. I think that's great. You know, one of the things that I find interesting about how the force is spoken about throughout the prequels and how that changes is how startlingly different it is to what we are presented with in the original trilogy, which is very much that the force is this impartial, naturally balanced thing. It is this force that binds the universe together. It surrounds us. It is part of us, and it is the thing that connects us to all other life forms, living beings, sentient things, and so on and so forth throughout the universe. In the prequels, starting with The Phantom Menace, it takes on this much more sentient quality as if the force itself has will and it can work that will upon us. The force becomes fate, kismet. The force becomes something divine, even like a god. And then in this movie, we get this evolution towards speaking more explicitly about how we, as people, as sentient users of the Force as Jedi, as Sith, or whatever in the middle, impose our will upon the Force, or use the Force to exact our will, to achieve power, to achieve knowledge, to defend the innocent, to uncover the mysteries and the secrets of the universe. And that's where we start to uncover these little bits of kindling to the dark side that eventually spark the fire that is Darth Vader within Anakin Skywalker. The thing that's so interesting to me is that when I watch that now, it feels very much to me like the reason the Jedi fall, the reason the Jedi are in many ways a a bad guy in this movie, the reason the Jedi Council are an antagonist to Anakin Skywalker, is because they and the Sith misunderstand the Force, misunderstand the purpose of the Force in the galaxy. The way I see it, the Force is balance. The Force is in balance and wants to be in balance. It's us who screw that up, right? It's us who work our will upon it and throw it one way or another and who create imbalances in our little sphere. You said something about how maybe the like perfect light side state of the force is a functioning democracy or a republic. And that made me wonder, I, this is kind of a boomerang, is that the ideal state of the light side of the force or is the force tabula rasa? Is the force the state of nature? Is the force this like untouched, pure ideal that as soon as human ego gets involved and outside uh, you know, forces, for lack of a better word, get involved, it all gets thrown out of whack? All right, so that's a really huge question. And I want to tackle that question with first admitting that we could interpret this a variety of different ways. I do think Star Wars, as an overarching theme, 
is one of democracy versus fascism. Yeah. And the fact that the light side, the good guys are on the side of democracy and the bad guys are for the totalitarianism, authoritarianism, fascism, whatever word you want to use, but one person controlling everything through the military um, makes it pretty clear that Star Wars is saying that, yes, there is a better way to govern, and that better way to govern is a way that brings balance to the Force. Because in all three trilogies, original, sequel, and prequel, it is the battle of um, democracy versus fascism is the political fight the characters are fighting. So from that context, I think Star Wars is very clearly saying that the universe, the force, America, the world, that it's, it's drawing from is better off as a democracy than fascism. George Lucas famously based the empire off of the Third Reich. They're called stormtroopers. You know, that's a Nazi term. So he was making the empire be space Nazis. So I don't think it's subtle that Star Wars textually is saying a democracy, a republic, will bring more balance to the force than an empire, which is just dark side. That being stated, I do think there's nuance to how many Star Wars stories, including the prequels, and including the sequel trilogies, reflect upon the High Republic era and how it became the Empire. And that, that reflection was that, perchance the Jedi weren't as good as we thought they were. Perchance the Jedi Order got too invested within the political systems, they got too invested within the war, they got too invested in maintaining their own status and authority in the galaxy and stopped being actual stewards of the force. And I think that is exemplified in how the stewards of the force, the light side, inadvertently play right into Palpatine's hands by asking Anakin to spy on Palpatine. That is directly asking Anakin to be something he's not, which is a spy, duplicitous, intrigue. These are not things that the Jedi Council will even put on record. And then it starts feeling like, are we just trying to win this war? Or are we really part of the light side? Are we really trying to do good in the galaxy? Are we just trying to spy and defeat our enemies? Are we slipping into the tactics of the dark side in defense of the light? And hence, then, aren't we just in the dark side? Which is a roundabout way to say the Jedi, in many ways, are responsible for their own downfall. After all, they like that Palpatine has more executive authority at first because that gets them the army they need to lead the war. Then the Jedi quickly go from peacekeeper to generals. And then as generals, now they're leading a war. And so there starts to be these cracks in the Jedi order that someone as charismatic and as ruthless and as powerful of Palpatine 
is able to exploit. That is great. One thing that really struck me during this most recent rewatch that I did was when Palpatine had Anakin in his chambers, he was talking about, he was tiptoeing around wanting to bring him under his wing, and he said something about how you have to embrace a larger view of the Force, including the dark side. And that, on its own, I think is actually a good piece of advice for everyone who is involved with in any way wielding the force, right? It's when immediately after that, he does a little pivot and says, only through me can you learn the secrets of the force and only through me can you gain access to ultimate power. That's when you start to be like, ding, 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 this guy's a Sith Lord. But the idea of understanding both dark and light so that you can understand the importance of balance in the galaxy is exactly what the Jedi appear to be missing even Yoda, who is clearly the most wise and the most prudent and the, the longest schooled in the ways of the Force, immediately when Anakin mentions that he cares about another person is like, ooh, dude, that's the way to the dark side. You really gotta be careful of giving a crap about another person, yikes. I feel like the Jedi completely avoiding any contact with those natural parts of humanity or whatever your species is that interact with what is associated with the dark side, that feels tantamount to me to like the banishment of one's shadow that allows it then to fester. You have to look at those things. You have to embrace those parts of yourself and integrate those parts of yourself if you are going to become a fully realized person, same thing as an organization. If there are those pieces of your organization that are festering, or you are putting your uh, you know, untested uh, Jedi out onto espionage without them feeling fully on board with it, that is gonna come back and sow the seeds of your downfall. So you're talking about partly the scene where Anakin goes to Yoda to try to understand his visions. Yeah. See, I read that scene very differently than the way you characterized it. And I think that gets to the crux of the difference between Anakin and Yoda. And what Yoda says is, you know, death is a natural part of life. Do not mourn, you know, celebrate the life and that they transform into the force. Anakin's desire to lord over life and death while coming from a position of wanting to save his wife from death, coming from a position that we could all understand. You love someone, you know they're going to die. If you have the power to save them, wouldn't you? The answer to that question is, of course you would. But Yoda's broader point is beyond the day-to-day -day suffering, there is a broader view in which death is natural. We all must die, and we need to train ourselves to let go of those that die. I don't think he's scolding Anakin and being like, you shouldn't feel attachment. You know, he says, he warns him that saying, hey, that attachment can go too far if you find that you can't let that person go. Like, train yourself to be okay with letting go 
of the material is a message that just about every theological study, every great religious or moral philosopher in human history has argued to one degree or another. Like, you should be able to be let go of the material possessions because they are ultimately fleeting and do not matter in, and not that his wife's his possession, but the idea of letting go of the material in the pursuit of the spiritual, and that is something that Anakin cannot do. And in this way, it's a Greek tragedy because he is the reason Padme dies. And if only he took Yoda's advice there, Padme would not have died. So by ignoring Yoda's advice, he goes on the path that secures and guarantees the very outcome he's trying to prevent, which is why it is a very sad story. So I don't read that necessarily as them saying, Jedi, you shouldn't love. That's your problem. You know, I read that as saying, hey, okay, so you love this person? You're going to have to let them go at some point, Anakin. You need to learn to let them go. That's part of what it means to be a spiritually healthy and active and vibrant Jedi, as it does to mean to be a spiritually active and healthy person in the real world. So I look at that as not a macro lesson about the Jedi's faults, but as an internal psychological lesson about Anakin Skywalker and why he can't do that. What's the point to Anakin to accumulating any type of power at all if it's not to use that power in one way to save someone he loves, but the flip side on that coin is to get what he wants. And so while at first it seems altruistic, but on the other hand, it's about I will trade all outcomes for the one I want. And then by so doing, creates the very outcome he's trying to avoid. So I look at that a little more psychologically as opposed to a broader message. I do think there is a broader message about the Jedi being, being um, a faulty political organization. I mean, one which allows and helps the rise of this autocrat in Palpatine. Right, which is really what I'm trying to, to communicate there. I think you're absolutely spot on with that analysis of the Yoda scene, but I'm really trying to communicate the blinders that the Jedi have on when it comes to recognizing that the dark side is present in the force and is important to balance and is present in all of us and in all of the Jedi. You cannot eradicate that part of the force. You have to learn to tame it. You have to learn to live side by side with it in a way that is healthy or you are going to sow the seeds of the empire. And for a thousand years, the Republic was able to do that. Right. And this is the story of when they fail. Yeah. Word. Totally agree. Totally 100% agree. We're like deep in analysis. We're well beyond does it hold up here. But that being stated, what else you got? Yeah. So this is my favorite part because I get to talk about the way I watch this movie now, which has made it much more enjoyable for me. And that's that over the years, I have come to see the Revenge of the Sith and the prequel narrative as a whole when it comes to Anakin's arc as a post-Freudian adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. 
you are probably familiar with Frankenstein, and it's not the first time we have discussed it on the pod. It won't be the last. I have this pet theory or you know, fancy of mine that Frankenstein is the most influential novel ever written. I believe it fully with my whole heart, and you cannot convince me otherwise. And I won't try to. But I will give my version of the briefest of brief recaps, just because I think it's helpful for this analysis segment. It is going to be a lot lighter on details than a Derek Jones uh, briefest of brief recap, because I'm not good with details. But the basic plot of Frankenstein centers around a young man named Victor Frankenstein. He is interested in science, natural philosophy, and emerging technologies and philosophies. And the kind of inciting incident for his life's work is the death of his mother. His mother dies while she is nursing a foundling whose name is Elizabeth, and she's important because she will later go on to be Victor's fiance. They'll be deeply in love and betrothed. Victor eventually goes to college, and he's so motivated by this personal tragedy that he is determined to discover the principle of life to ultimately learn how to defeat death. He winds up creating the, uh, you know, the classic creature by harnessing lightning to reanimate dead tissue and basically bring a corpse or a bunch of sewn corpse parts back to life. Immediately after this creature wakes up, Victor Frankenstein looks upon this, thinks it's a monster, and he rejects it. So the creature does some wandering in the world, he learns to speak English, and he forms kind of a bond from afar with a family who also, as soon as they finally see what he looks like and how monstrous he appears, they also reject him and refuse to give back the love that he has for them. So the creature goes back to Victor and confronts him and says, I am so lonely. You've made me a monster. Nobody wants to be around me. Would you please make me a companion? Would you please make me a female? And Victor, under duress, agrees. And he's making this female companion for the creature. But as he is in the midst of animating the, uh, the woman, is so disgusted with himself that he destroys the female companion in front of his creature. This does not go over well with the creature, who ends up going on a murderous rampage. And one of the people that is killed in this by strangulation, of course, is Victor's beloved fiance, Elizabeth, on the eve of their wedding, no less. The novel culminates in the creature pursuing Victor into the kind of frozen wastelands of the north. There, Victor dies of illness, and the creature carries his body off, saying, I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to take my life, because I don't want anyone to know how I was made. I don't want this to ever happen again. So just on the surface, there are a number of kind of obvious similarities between Frankenstein and Revenge of the Sith, particularly Anakin. We have a character in both Victor and Anakin who are deeply traumatized and motivated by the deaths of their mother, and that spurs them to the kind of misappropriation of knowledge, misappropriation of discovery in Victor that is discovering the kind of secret principles of life, and in Anakin, 
that is finding access to tap into his great power through the dark side. We have the motif of strangulation, which is how the monster kills his victims in Frankenstein, and it's also the force choke is the classic move of Darth Vader. And then also the motif of lightning, which is the catalyst that brings the creature to life, and force, no, force lightning is you know, a common Palpatine move, also you know, just a major dark side power that can be wielded by folks who use the force, and especially Sith Lords. Other images like Vader breaking free of his restraints on the table that looks like an operating table at the very end of the movie feels very similar to Frankenstein's monster coming alive on the slab. And then I also mentioned the kind of access to forbidden knowledge piece. That's another, like, that just feels like a, a surface level similarity between Frankenstein and Revenge of the Sith. But I'd also encourage us to look at the kind of deeper themes of the novel that resonate through Revenge of the Sith. It's been called, there's a scholar named Jane Thomas who calls Frankenstein the quintessential novel of doubleness in a pre-Freudian age. So we think about Frankenstein, it's written in the early 19th century. This is before we have Sigmund Freud saying that we all have this shadow. This is before Jung saying we all have this shadow, this unconscious that has these kind of taboo desires or impulses, the id, ego, superego triangle. And yet some of those themes are really there in their infancy in the way that characters are paired off in Frankenstein. You have Frankenstein and the monster who are sort of frequently, almost comically uh, interchangeable in contemporary culture. When you say Frankenstein, you think of the monster, and that is wrong on the surface, but also there's a way to read Frankenstein that like the, the creature is the other half of Victor, the scientist, and there's a way to read Revenge of the Sith that I think has been very much expanded on with the canon, which is that Darth Vader and Anakin are two different people and also the same. In um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you have Darth Vader saying to Obi-Wan, you didn't kill Anakin Skywalker, I did. Yeah, no, the death of Anakin is by lightning. Yeah. With the rebirth into Darth Vader, <clears throat> which isn't complete until he is bathed in fire and then fully his flesh is reborn, repurposed. There is a <clears throat> sort of symbolic death happening and rebirth where there is now a new person as so much so that in the original trilogy, you know, Obi-Wan says Darth Vader betrayed and murdered your father. Yeah. And when From Luke a says, point of view. yeah, like, hey, later in Jedi, like, what's up with that dude? You lied to me. And he's just like, actually, the truths we cling to, they pertain entirely to our points of view. Something that the Jedi in the prequel trilogy, back to what we were talking about before, have totally lost sight of. Yeah. 
they have totally lost sight of that there could be a different point of view. Even as such that, I'm sorry if I'm like stepping on your point here. No, you're good. Um, even as such that when Anakin and uh, Obi-Wan are confronted on Mustafar, that Anakin even throws, hey, from my point of view, the Jedi are evil. Yeah. Because the Jedi have lost perspective that there can be other points of view other than their own. Yes. And to walk down this path with doubling, we have the two sets of masters and apprentice, two who are shown as sets of brothers or father-son relationships that also look like mirrors. Uh, we've got Obi-Wan and Anakin. We already mentioned that they have the same color lightsaber. And when they they fight together, it's like this dance. It's like looking at yourself in a mirror. And then you have the kind of funhouse version of that where you have Anakin or Darth Vader and his Sith master in Palpatine who is th this perverse version of the father figure. He is the, the dark shadow who eventually, you know, Freud would have loved it, right? So other themes that resonate through both Frankenstein and Revenge of the Sith, we've got corruption, in Frankenstein, Geneva in Switzerland is revealed to be this corrupt place where people are, you know, are convicted of crimes they didn't commit, and the law and justice systems are revealed to be uh, not so on the up and up. While also we've got corruption invading the Senate and also the Jedi Council. Then we have, I think, most importantly, the themes of rejection and isolation. So when I watch it through this lens, I get this tremendous sense of sympathy for Anakin Skywalker, especially watching his journey from child, really, truly blank slate, tabula rasa, good kid. Can I just say, you've said the term tabula rasa twice. I have no idea what that means. Oh, it means blank. It's Latin for blank slate. It's a Rousseauian or Hobbesian idea from the Enlightenment that suggests it's a sort of deist philosophy that human beings are born without inherent morality and that we are then kind of shaped by our experiences and that determines whether we are good or bad, whether we choose the dark side or the light side. Anakin, when he is brought to the Jedi for the first time, like, he doesn't have evil he doesn't have like true moral good yet he's just like a sweet kid who wants to do the right thing there's a great quote in frankenstein that says i was benevolent and good misery made me a monster it's not that he is born a monster it's not that anakin is born darth vader he is shaped by rejection and isolation. And what happens again and again and again to Anakin when he comes up against the Jedi Council? He is constantly rejected, belittled, even as a child. When he comes to them, they're like, no, he's too old. I sense great anger in him. We cannot possibly train him. As he tries, as he gets better, as he gets stronger, as he shows his desire to do good, the great example of this is him coming to Mace Windu in the end after finding out that Palpatine is the Sith Lord and learning that he could access this great power. The first thing he does 
is go to Mace Windu and try to do the right thing and say, you know, we've been infiltrated. Let's, uh, let me help, let me lead the mission to, you know, to oust him. And Mace Windu rejects him. He says, if this is true, you will have earned my trust, but I'll take it from here because I don't trust you to actually do the right thing. And it's that final rejection that leads him into Palpatine's hands. There is a version of this story that goes so differently if Anakin is not alone, isolated, feeling like he can't speak to anyone honestly, and rejected by the Jedi. And that feels very much to me like the journey of Frankenstein's monster. Well said. So where do you put, after having done this, the Star Wars prequels, in your Star Wars-ness? I think, I, and stop me if I'm crazy, you and I are OTs. We're original trilogies. Yeah. Nothing will replace the original trilogies for us. That's our favorite Star Wars so we're not even going to compare the prequels to the original trilogies because that wouldn't be fair. That's like comparing a rock band to the Beatles. It's just not fair. So we're not going to compare it to the original trilogy, um, but just give me your overall sense of doing this deep dive into the prequels. What are you feeling? What have you learned? How do you feel about them and its relation to Star Wars now? And is it different from when we started? It's definitely different from when we started. I have a newfound kind of appreciation for the prequels after the last few years. I think there is still a lot in them that is unfortunate, but I enjoy going back to watch them every once in a while, and I find really wonderful gems that inform the newer stuff that Star Wars creators are, are making. I, you know, we've, we've had a lot of conversations over the last year in our meditation format about like the future of Star Wars and the changing landscape of media, and we've had kind of differing opinions on whether or not like the expansion of the Star Wars IP is ultimately a net good, and I think I, on the side of like more Star Wars is is cool with me but the thing that has been the best about it is when something hits right when when somebody makes something like Andor when somebody makes something like Obi-Wan Kenobi which you and I both loved which just tugs an extra heartstring from the prequels and then you can go back to the prequels and be rewarded by that that's a really cool satisfying opportunity. So I have been feeling really good about the prequels lately because there has been so much added to the canon that enriches the prequels. And again, a lot of this too, a lot of what enriches the prequels is doing the Midnight Myth Project and reaching deeper for some of these themes, some of these comparisons, some of these mythological parallels and these philosophical parallels because they make our experience of the media richer. And so like this Frankenstein lens has made the prequels feel really good and really intentional to me, even if I'm reading a little bit too much between the lines, if that makes sense. You're never reading too much between the lines on the Midnight Myth. That's what <laughs> we do. The we Midnight are reading myth between the lines. exists between the lines. So there's never doing that too much. You know, I would say that when the prequels came out, 
having no other Star Wars movie other than the original trilogy and then the prequels, they left a very negative taste in my mouth. And they made me very sour on George Lucas as a storyteller. And as I reflect having done this with you and your point about so much new additional media has come out and how that has made us relook at the prequels um, since then, I really look at that sort of angry Star Wars fan, young version of myself and being like, how can you hate the man that wrote your favorite story ever? Right. How can you be mad about it? How can you be mad at the guy who created Han Solo? And I really want to look at that young man and be like, dude, chill out. It's Star Wars. Enjoy it. Don't enjoy it. But understand that this is a movie about space adventures. And on a certain level, we shouldn't be too deep about it because it is Star Wars, right? George Lucas has this famous quote. I'm going to mutilate it because I didn't write it down. But like, I made these movies for 12-year-olds. Like, yeah. What are you expecting? You know, like, they're for 12-year-olds. You know, like, that was his target demographic when he wrote them um, for the original and for the sequel. That being stated, a thing that having had an orig original prequel and, s and sequel that I could say that the prequels do unequivocally well is there's a unified artistic vision throughout all of it. Whether all of it is successful or not, it is unified. Um, it tells, each movie tells a story beginning, middle to end, and the trilogy is a beginning, middle, and end. It is a true trilogy. Yeah. Versus the sequels, which are disjointed, don't connect. Characters in one movie are nice. They're jerks in another. Like, the sequel trilogy feels very much like, oh, who's the artist that just throws art on the... Jackson Pollock. It feels like a Jackson Pollock <laughs> way to write a trilogy. It's the abstract expressionist Star Wars. It may be beautiful at the end, but it doesn't, if we're being honest, it's just art. It's just thrown on, this, on the, the <laughs> canvas, right? Like, if we're being honest, like, it may be beautiful and we might really enjoy it, but it, it's not a cohesive whole. It's more random pieces that are thrown onto the screen. That that's a little unkind to the sequel, but I think it's more in common with Jackson Pollock than it is with George Lucas's vision of this of the prequels. And I think one of the best things that happened in the Disney acquisition of Star Wars was, this, was that George Lucas made the sequel, I'm sorry, the prequels canon. And said you can buy this, but you can't undo anything I did. And that has created this wealth and this wonderful additional storytelling inspired from the prequels, which is, and the reason that's possible isn't because the prequels suck. Quite the opposite. It's because the prequels have a lot of good there. And I think that's where I land right now, is that the prequels are a phenomenal trilogy that no one movie hits a major high. Yeah, yeah. No one movie is a home run. But as a three-part 
those three parts as a whole are a home run that has created great stories that have come out of it. <coughs> Excuse me. And as a Star Wars fan, I'm all about it. I'm all about reinvestigating things in Star Wars from the lens of let's celebrate how much we love Star Wars and let's start there. And that doesn't mean we, we like excuse that, you know, sand, I don't like it. It's coarse. <laughs> Gets everywhere. Like we don't excuse that. You know, we don't excuse one of the best science fiction fantasy heroines of all time in Queen Amidala, Senator Amidala. Oh my God. Just dying because just losing she the will to live. lost the little, like, what about her kids? She doesn't want to live for her kids. You know, like, that is not great writing, in my opinion. Her frail Victorian woman heart. She caught a chill. The woman's won wars. You know, <laughs> she's won wars. Like, this should not have killed her. Like, and, like, it could have been complications from being choked while being pregnant with twins on a volcanic planet. That could kill a... That, like, it could have been that, but no, she medically, there's nothing wrong with her. She simply just wants to be dead. And I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, I don't like that. <laughs> you know, like, like, we could still be critical of these things, right? Like, and, and, and we should be, right? Like, let's not pretend that that isn't like, huh? The last thing we hear of Darth Vader in the prequels is him just screaming, no. That's a little corny. Oh, it's super corny. I don't love it, but... I do love it, but... That, you know, I, I don't think some, to some people, that's an unforgivable sin. Yeah. I don't think it's an unforgivable sin. It's just James Earl jo Jones's voice through the Darth Vader module screaming, no, it's supposed to send a shiver up my spine. It just didn't. Right? Like, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but uh, that being said, we're getting nitpicky here. I think the prequels are lovely. I think there's so much more good than bad in them. I think that has inspired generations of new Star Wars fans and storytellers to do amazing, amazing things. And for that, I have nothing but gratitude and love for what George Lucas did in these. And we wouldn't have digital filmmaking as we know it, for better or worse, which our podcast is not about how he made those films, but George Lucas, again, reinvents how movies are made in the prequels that forever has changed how movies are made. And so for that is really cool. So I think at the end of the day, I look at the prequels as just phenomenal. I am in all of them. I love them, even in their faults. I love that. Anything else? That is all I got. Until next time, be kind. Do it.